Hello and welcome to PodPod, the podcast all about podcasting for all you gorgeous podcasters. I'm Rihanna Dillon and this week I am joined by Reem Makari, PodPod journalist and researcher and Adam Shepard, editor of PodPod. Hi to you both. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you doing, Rihanna? All good. Thanks. I've been listening to a new podcast this morning, which just dropped, I think, like yesterday, which is the new one from BBC Four called A Very British Cult. Have you heard about this? Oh, no, I haven't. I'm already hooked. I'm two episodes in and it's just it's one of those great little kind of mini series investigative journalism podcasts that the BBC do so well. A bit like, you know, the missing crypto queen. Mm. I'm already because the whole idea of a British cult is so unusual. And I'm just intrigued to see how it happens in our kind of backyards to seemingly people who wouldn't necessarily be drawn in. Is it unusual? Well, I don't know. Is it? I feel like it's such an odd thing for people to be drawn into. But does this happen? more frequently than I realise. I mean, it certainly doesn't seem as kind of prevalent as it is in the US. I mean, I don't think I could name you a single British cult. So so go on. What is this very British cult? So the cult is called Lighthouse, I think. And it's all about tapping into people who want like life coaching and sort of life mentoring. Ah. And then, of course, once they're sort of sucked into that, then they're asked to give more and more money. That's how they get in. But anyway, I'm completely hooked. What's been uh, going on in the world of podcasting for you guys? So I've spent a lot of this week chatting to podcast producers and production companies uh, about just what what they're up to, what they've had going on. And what I'm hearing across the board from a lot of them is that the market isn't in a fantastic place. A lot of the commissions are getting slower and harder to, to come by. It's becoming more and more challenging to land these kinds of big shows for producers. And on the US side, even massive companies like Paramount are starting to slow things down. So Paramount has said that it's going to be producing less shows this year compared to 2022 and is generally going to be a lot more cautious about how it approaches its podcast portfolio. A lot of their podcasts are extensions of stuff that they already have. So, for example, they have like the RuPaul's Drag Race uh, Squirrel Friends podcast. They have a Survivor podcast. They have many that are kind of companion podcasts, but I think they also do have some other original stuff. But I've been seeing a big pattern of, like Adam was saying, many of these kind of podcast companies reducing their budget and cutting costs and talking about the slow market and and how it's kind of readjusting now. And with NPR, they had to cut four of their podcasts, which is really horrible. And many people were laid off. But with Paramount, which was interesting is the fact that they reported that their download numbers were fine. In fact, they increased and their revenue did increase. So their podcast investments didn't actually cause them to have to lay off any people or, or make some savings. But they made the decision to reduce the number of podcasts because they can see that pattern with everyone else. So they're kind of just taking caution now and being like, we might as well just slow down where we can instead of over-invest like some of the other companies have. 
So they're sort of anticipating a podcasting crash. It seems mad to think that if their revenue is still up and their listenership is going up, that's the wrong time to scale back, isn't it? I mean, you'd see it with Spotify, for example, like they've made all of these big, heavy podcast investments, but they did end up, you know, kind of realizing that they've over invested a bit late in the game. And then they had 200 million, I think, in operating loss because of that. So Adam, do you think that that trend is going to kind of be rolled out with other companies? We're going to see more of this happening with podcasters having to kind of strip back a little bit? Yes, I think this is going to be something that the industry grapples with over the rest of this year. I think the slowdown in the market that a lot of people have been predicting is going to continue to bite, I think, for production companies in particular, as the commissions from the larger kind of networks, you know, people like Wondery and Spotify and BBC Sounds and whatnot get smaller in value and more fiercely fought over, that is going to continue to have an impact. It's not disastrous, I don't think, but it is something that podcast producers and podcast creators should be aware of. Well, hopefully, especially for our guest today, because we spoke to the Oh God, What Now gang, they used to be Romaniacs, right? And They've kind of changed their title. We'll get into all of that later. But they are growing and growing. It's quite difficult to imagine podcasters who are at the top of their game right now and, you know, the peak is perhaps nowhere in sight still for them to have to scale back. So how do you think slightly more independent podcasting is going to make a boon out of this if if bigger companies are going to start retreating? I think there is a real niche for podcasts with, let's say, not quite as elaborate budget needs and production needs to fill. Mm. There is an opportunity for more lean producers and more lean operations to come in and snap up some of that revenue, I think. So should we get into our interview with the Oh God, What Now guys? Andrew Harrison, Editorial Director at Podmasters and Oh God, What Now presenter and Roz Taylor, who is a contributing editor at Podmasters and also an Oh God, What Now presenter. So a bit of background, these are political podcasters who are really not afraid of saying what they really think about politics, which makes for a refreshing change sometimes. Originally, Romaniacs, it was all about kind of Brexit, the reason for the launch of their original podcast. And of course, since Brexit, they've had to change with the times. And oh God, what now is a result of that change? So joining me on this week's interview is Matt Hill, who runs Rethink Audio and is the co-founder of the British Podcast Awards. You may have heard him before. And if you work in podcasting, you've probably met him. So let's have a listen to our chat with Andrew Harrison and Roz Taylor. Hello, Andrew Harrison and Roz Taylor. Welcome to PodPod. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. So, oh God, What Now?, which is one of the best-named podcasts that we've had on here, I think, (laughs) launched originally as Romaniacs. So tell us about how the podcast evolved from Romaniacs to Oh God, What Now?, well, it's, it's a long and winding road, isn't it, Roz, from the depths of Brexit? It is. And it was actually quite hard to come up with a 
name that was as good and encapsulated what we were doing so well as Romaniacs, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, with Romaniacs, it was like the, almost the first idea was we should do a podcast called Romaniacs. And then it all just fell into place because we were so sick and tired of how badly reported Brexit was being, how the kind of imposition of fake balance where you had, you know, 99% of economists thought Brexit was a terrible idea, but the BBC would always put them up against Patrick Minford and make it look like it was a 50-50 split. We were just driven to absolute distraction. Uh, and we thought, you know, a podcast that was absolutely anti-Brexit, absolutely for the people who felt very strongly about this, was a very, very clear thing to do. Call it Romaniacs. Take the insult back. It's very, very obvious, isn't it? But after a couple of years of... It was, I mean, it was a very successful podcast, but we got to the point where we had actually left the European Union and our podcast was still called Romaniacs. And we're like, we can't, we can't go on with this. So the gestation of the new name took forever. It was a real elephant's pregnancy. And yeah, I remember having meetings in parks during, you know, sort of semi-lockdowns where we <laughs> talked about about it between ourselves and in the end I think we got you got us all into a room and just kind of said right we've got a really good name live with it well we, we, were, we were sitting on park benches and shouting things across to each other like why don't we call it the political future no that's a terrible idea and I think what happened was somebody suggested we just call it what now and somebody went oh god <laughs> oh God, what now? And it reminded us of, uh, is it Brenda from Bristol or whatever her name was? Yeah. Gets, she gets vox popped. Is this going to be another election? She goes, no, another one. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Well, it was just an atmosphere of permacrisis that yeah. was just British politics and it was perfect, I think, for that. We're going to do a Victorian version called Whatever Next. <laughs> Very good. As you say, you, you know, you were known for speaking predominantly about Brexit. So once you weren't necessarily talking about Brexit every single time, did the audience go down once we had formally left the EU? Well, funny story. We thought it was going to, which is why we launched in parallel a podcast called The Bunker, which we named after where we were recording. It was basically underground at Soho Radio in London at the time. We, we was originally our, our recording bunker. Then we moved to other places. It was always felt like a tight little bunker. And we thought we need to build our own escape pod. So we'll do something that is like Romaniacs, same tone, same vibe. Vibe, a lot of the same cast, but it won't be about Brexit. It'll be about everything else in politics because what's going to happen is once Brexit fades in the scene, Romaniacs will naturally fade away. But it just didn't. Romaniacs stayed very, very popular and it actually increased its listenership on a lot of metrics. And we realised that what really made it tick was people came for the Brexit, but they stayed for the panel. They stayed for Roz and Naomi and Dory Linsky and Ian Dunn, you know, all these people for whom they had become like their gang. Their sort of emotional support group stroke uh, Grand Inquisition yeah. talking about the world of politics. So we actually end up with two really healthy podcasts alongside one another. So the bunker is now daily and it's made of explainers and interviews and sort of deep dives. And Romaniacs has evolved into Oh God, What Now?, which is now twice weekly. These guys get into a room and just basically bang their heads on the desk about the state of politics. Yeah, it's cathartic, basically. That is, I think, a key part of the appeal. People who felt that just rational politics had gone completely out of the window and it was a chance to let off steam. And of course, you know, Ian in particular is quite sweary, I think it's He's fair to sweary. say. And so that, that had a cathartic element. But there have been times when all of us have just been like, oh my God, I'm so angry at what is happening. And you can tell the reaction you get on social media for, from people when they hear that. It's like, yes, I, I, I've been feeling this and you've articulated it. So I think that's a big part of the success. The, the listeners particularly like it when Roz really loses her rag and gets a bit sweary <laughs> because she doesn't do it very often. When she starts, it, it, uh, it hits the spot. Yeah, I've got quite a calm voice normally, obviously. So when I do lose it, you know, it, it cuts through. <laughs> 
When you think about the kind of post-Brexit media landscape, the other big entry that came from that vote was the New European. Yeah which was a really big success. It was like the, the last really successful print newspaper launch. And they, as I understand it, most of their revenue comes from people paying for it over news agents and from subscriptions. They don't get a huge amount of advertising. How has it worked for you guys in terms of ad revenue versus what has now become Apple subscriptions and Patreon? Where's your revenue coming from? Patreon is the the foundation of it. Patreon was massive for us. We're sitting in a studio now, the studio that Patreon built. Um, so <laughs> what we said when we launched the podcast, we said we said to the panel, we can't pay you yet. We'll pay you when we can pay you. And they very graciously did it for free until we could pay them. And now we can pay them and we can pay them, I think, relatively uh, competitively. In terms of the, the, the foundation of the company, we did the podcast basically for free to anybody who wanted it for probably about five or six months before we introduced Patreon. So we built our audience and then said, look, you clearly like it. If you want to support us, kick in a few quid. It'll still always be available for free, but £5 a month, you get a Romaniacs mug. And now, now, what now mug? £10 a month, you get that in a t-shirt. Discounted tickets to the live shows. Uh, then when lockdown happened, we started offering free Zooms. So it's it's a great way of, I mean, as you know, as all you guys on this podcast, it's a great way of building a relationship with your audience. But by building the audience and building the numbers, we were then able to bring in significant advertising. And it's kind of 50-50 now on advertising and Patreon with some extra from the live shows. And it's become a viable, healthy business, which is about to go to record headcount on Monday when we take on, I think, what is it, our 14th person? So yeah. we are the only job creation scheme to come out of Brexit. Well, apart from customs officials, let's face yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> That puts you quite far ahead of the curve then in terms of Patreon, because, you know, we're talking 2017. That's not really like a time I associate with a huge podcast Patreon drive. Like It feels like Patreon kind of came in sort of 2019, 2020 into a lot of podcasts. So were you kind of pioneers in that area or who had you seen doing it well? Yes, we were definitely pioneers in that area. Nobody was doing it till we did. No, look, we just gave it a try. You know, it was kind of seen as something that might work or might not work. We just didn't know. The actual original financing of the company came when I got a PPI payment from the Halifax. They'd been overcharging me on my mortgage for years and I thought we can take this money and I can go on holiday or we can put it into the business. And it was the seed money that, that enabled us to, to pay all the initial bills and get to the point where we'd built an audience that we could take it to Patreon and then we could take it to market as an advertising thing. So I think with Patreon, it was more a case of we'll give it a go and see what happens, which has been the way we've done most of the podcasts, hasn't it really? Pretty much, yeah. We've been, I think, really nimble in terms of setting up new podcasts and the ability to do that. Yeah. And in terms of with the with the Patreon, at the end of every episode, you sort of do a thank you to individuals. Is that something, because it's such a simple way, such a simple way of saying thank you, but do you find that it is effective in getting what you want from your patrons people really love it they particularly like it when we've got john burko to do uh, some of them although i think he's a bit slightly cancelled now isn't he but, it, yeah. but when he was cool we got john burko to do it and they, they really like it was that. cool yes. yeah and they, they don't always use their real names which is absolutely fine and we do have some celebrity backers do yes. we not yes who we cannot name obviously but do have pseudonyms that are used Yes, and we also we also have normal people who unfortunately share a name with famous people. So um, <laughs> we've got one back called Owen Jones, and the panel were like, "Really? He likes that one? I think it might be a different one." <laughs> 
when you are so explicitly partisan, do you get quite sort of frustrated? Like you were just talking about the swearing and sort of like the anger. How do you sort of overcome your emotions? Because you echo so much of the conversation that I might have with my friends when we're in the pub and we just get up angrier and angrier and then we just say, what's the point? So how do you sort of overcome the what's the point bit? Yeah, I mean, we underestimate generally in politics how important it is for people who are like-minded to get together and share their frustration. You know, when you think about demonstrations and the value of protests, uh, the kind of things that the government is currently cracking down on, a lot of that is not actually in the ability to change much. Because if you look at the success of the Brexit marches, zero, frankly, let's be honest, and the success of many other, you know, things like hunting protests, for example, back in under the Labour government, they very rarely actually get what they want. What they do do is make people feel that they have an outlet and somewhere in the world they are able to express what they are feeling. And that is fundamentally a healthy thing. And to hear other people articulate what you're thinking is really helpful, I think. It is cathartic, but it also helps to maybe defray some of the rage that you might feel. Now, let's face it, our listeners are not the kind of people who are going to necessarily go out and smash shop windows. In fact, I think that's fairly unlikely. But there are obviously political outlets for rage which are not helpful and do lead into dark, bad places. And if you can provide a place where people can discuss things intelligently, respectfully, which is what we do. We may yeah. be angry, but we are intensely respectful. And, you know, we, we disagree often within ourselves. I have differences with other members of the panel on certain things. They do you, you with You and me. Ian are always fighting about the royal family and everything, aren't Yeah, you? exactly. You know, differences in the House of Lords, all kinds of things. If you provide that space, that is fundamentally a healthy thing to do because the anger is expressed. And yeah, we've all felt, what, what are we just shouting into the void? We might be shouting into the void, but we're actually shouting into the void together. And shouting into the void together is a far better and healthier thing to be doing. I also think that it knits things together for the future. So, you know, the big EU Brexit demonstrations might not have achieved much at the time. But what they did do is they built a big community of people who see their key political orientation now as being pro-membership of the European Union, outward looking. They've made the connection between an international, internationalist outlook and what it means in their own hometowns. It's also probably the, the, the great convulsion of Brexit, you know, meant that we had to confront the fact that there were parts of the country that had felt left behind and ignored. Brexit wasn't the answer to their problems, but it certainly brought a lot of people, maybe at our end of the debate, up close and uh, face to face with those issues. And what we try to do on the podcast as well, although, you know, we, we are absolutely, you know, we are biased. We've got a point of view. We've got things that we believe and we're not shy about it. We don't we don't pretend to be this kind of arid and impartial thing. But because we nail our colours to the mast, it means we can interrogate our own positions a bit harder than, say, on Newsnight, for instance. So on Newsnight, you've got a Remainer up against a Lever and the minute a Remainer says, well, actually, I think we got this wrong on the campaign or I actually I think this is what's wrong with the European Union or actually I think we, we could modify a lot of our demands. What happens there is the lever immediately pounces on them and goes, ha 
aha, defeat, I've scored a point. Your arguments and your position are completely devalued. That's what kind of punch and duty interviewing gives you. It's not really about getting to the issues. It's just about scoring points. Whereas in our own environment, where we're all broadly on the same page, we can actually criticise our own opinions. And by criticising them, improve them, make them stronger, take them apart and all that kind of thing. Yeah, in a sort of, you know, Socratic way without we wanting to be too pretentious. It's a it's an environment where you feel free to to talk. I mean, I think we've criticised the EU, for example. We're not uncritical of the EU. In some ways, it's it's not a healthy institution. Well, when there was the corruption scandal at the end of last year, when um, senior EU officials were found to be taking bribes, all over Twitter, you could see the usual lever faces going, well, I don't see the Romaniac pro-EU uh, haters of their own country talking about this very much. And we said, we did our entire episode on it. Look, here it is. I think the headline was the hustles from Brussels. Mm-hmm. So we actually like waded in on it and did it properly because we've we've kind of, I think, earned the position to yeah. be able to talk about this stuff honestly. Yeah, and I think podcasting is a great antidote to social media in this way as well, where you just feel like you're constantly setting yourself up to fight with other people yeah. and to defend your position against people who are not attacking it entirely rationally. And it's a great liberation. It certainly was for me when I first joined Romaniacs because I was working on Brexit at the time for a university. And it was a place where I could talk about Brexit. And what's more, it was funny. That's one of the things about, oh God, what now in Romaniacs? There's a lot of humour. We laugh at each other. We laugh with each other. We laugh at things. It's not a dull, no fun podcast at all. The effect of being able to laugh about the ridiculousness of some of the things that were happening around Brexit was just extraordinary. A podcast like this is like being at a really great party with interesting people with interesting opinions and a sense of humour, whereas social media is like being in a really horrible bar where so many people you don't know keep walking up to you, poking you and shouting at you. you (laughs) What a battery. Venturing their (laughs) opinions that you never asked for. Yeah. Yeah. What happens in terms of your audience if somebody, do you get people who who listen who aren't left wing? who do disagree with you, but they listen anyway to hear the other side of the opinion. I don't think all of our listeners are left-wing by any sense. Oh, no, 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 no. We are centrist FM, we are. Well, we are quite centrist, though I think there are more centrist podcasts. I think The Rest is Politics, to be honest, is the most centrist one out there. But there are people who listen to us who disagree with us and who take us up on things, and actually that's quite healthy. You know, we've got listeners and we've had guests from, you know, basically across the pro-European spectrum. So we've had soft Tories and One Nation Tories and we've had uh, members of uh, Momentum uh, and the kind of the the pro-European capital L left. We've had them on. So it's it's a spectrum. We just we kind of draw the line. at You know, we're not very interested in having somebody from, you know, whatever the Brexit party is called this week on. And we're not very interested in having somebody from the kind of, uh, you know, outer wilds of the EU is a boss's club smash capitalism because what kind of conversation would we have it would be boring but we'll have everybody else on i mean you i mean some of the more entertaining and, and uh kind of persuasive guests we've had on sometimes been people from a really different political tradition to me yeah exactly it's because we're talking about something that, that we all share which is a belief that leaving the eu was a mistake but we are several years on from that so we're also looking at like what does that political tradition mean now and in the future what do you make of the rest is politics and the news agents and these kind of shows that have come into the foreground in the last year? And how has that helped define what you do in relation to what they do? Has it changed your strategy at all? Well, it's really flattering to see up and coming young podcasters like Rory Stewart taking the lead from us. I think it's really nice. It's great. We're basically the Velvet Underground and these guys are Coldplay, aren't they, really? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think... Uh, one of the things that uh, you've got to bear in mind as well is that, oh God, what now? 
it has a lot of women on it, and I think that's important. Uh, in a lot of political podcasts, there are not a lot of women, and they are not foregrounded. They're not their voices aren't out there, and that's I think one of the key ways in which we're different. Uh, the default podcast for politics does seem to be quite male. And I think we have always tried to fight against that. And we continue to challenge that idea in what we do, which to me is very important. I think it's great that they're bringing more people into listening to podcasts because there's still, you know, we, we tend to forget that podcasting is still a niche activity. I, I told my mum that we were doing an edition on something other, and she said, what time is it on? She didn't kind of get the what a podcast work. <laughs> Anything that's bringing more people through the door. So Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart and Maitlis and the news agents, are like, it's great. It gets people through the door. I think for the likes of us, we haven't really changed that much, have we? We haven't sort of gone, oh, we really need to sort of radically change the offering to take uh, account of what the news agents is doing. In fact, more than anything, we found that, you know, with a handful of exceptions, like when we had Blair on or Alan Johnson did especially good, actually, it's not really special guests and big names that give us a spike in listenership. It is when we've either said something exciting and penetrating or whether it's just chaos in politics. So mm-hmm. Liz Truss, awful for absolutely everybody <laughs> except us. And not that we want to back, but the graph of our listener figures maps very closely onto the craziness index of British politics. So the more insane it is, we're right up there. You've seen the, the rest is politics and uh, news agents sort of topping the charts. Sort of, it seems like that they, they, they've got these massive audiences, but you've been around for a long time. And, and even though you're not necessarily in the same position in the charts, we know that you will have a large audience. Do you sort of look at it and go, well, the momentum is with them, but actually we've got all the audience. I don't know. I mean, I, I look at it. Oh, God, what now is not the only podcast we put out. We now have a stable of lots of exciting things. Some of them from the panel of, oh, God, what now? Others, collaborations and new ideas we've done with, with, with other people. We just look at it in terms of we've got a really healthy business here and we've got people who love our podcasts because of what our podcasts are. They're not necessarily just followers of famous person X or famous person Y. We're also in the position where we are we're not dependent on the good offices of famous person X. So, for instance... You know, some of those big deals that have been done, yes, they're getting people to the top of the Apple chart, but what happens if famous person X decides that they want to move on? They want to do do something else. What happens if they're tempted back into politics? What happens if uh, another job turns up? And we sort of feel like they're the Premier League and that's fine. But when you're the Premier League, you're very dependent on your big ticket signings. And we sort of feel like we've built it up more from the grassroots. It makes us a little bit more robust. We have a a growing panel. We've added some extra names over the past couple of years just to kind of keep it fresh, but also to ensure that we can diversify. So Roz did a fantastic series called Jam Tomorrow. She was able to do that because we were able to bring in other people on the panel. It's I I believe the footballing term is strength in depth. The news agents, obviously, it's an incredible professional uh, piece of work, but it's fundamentally an offshoot of the BBC. And it's very similar to the kinds of things that BBC does because it's ex-BBC people. And it's not in any way, I would say, breaking new ground in the way that I think we have done. We have, yeah. Do you think that, that podcasting does have the sort of ability to influence policy? Because, you know, we did hear Jeremy Hunt talking to the news agents saying that he listened to them as he was writing policy. It was it was an excruciating <laughs> watch. He hadn't heard it. He hadn't heard it. But I'm do you sure. think that there is an element of politicians sort of listening and sort of taking note? Or is that just sort of wishful thinking on our part as podcasters? Well, given our resounding success in stopping Brexit, I think it's very clear that uh, politicians <laughs> hang on our every word, isn't it, Ros? 
absolutely. So, I, 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 honestly, I don't know. I just think we kind of just we we sort of just drop ideas into the into the pond, and we try and reflect what our audience is thinking, and also challenge our audience a little bit. In that audience, there are some politicians. You know, if there was one idea I could drop into politicians' ears right now, it'd actually be uh, into whatever the DCMS is called at the moment, that perhaps uh, we should be opening the playing field more to independent podcasts, possibly through the BBC Sounds app, which is pure BBC right now. And maybe more podcasts like ours and all the other brilliant independent podcasts should get a look in there. But I don't think we're trying to influence policy otherwise. No, I, I think the range of acceptable policy in many ways has narrowed, even though we've moved sharply rightwards in terms of what it is okay to do in politics. You know, it's not okay to discuss rejoining the European Union yet, for example. I hope one way it will be. If you're thinking about, let's talk about a very contemporary thing, making nitrous oxide illegal, the Labour Party also favours that. You know, we provide a space where you can actually talk about policies that are perfectly reasonable and in perhaps another time in another decade would have been fully you know fully fully considered but which are deemed unacceptable for the major parties to go near and that just happens to be an accident of time but it's very important that we keep talking about those policies and talking about stuff that is not unreasonable it's just politically unthinkable but it's not in any way unreasonable because that helps keep the flame of you know decent politics and evidence-based policy making the other things we believe in it helps keep that alive yeah i mean i've never known a time where the content of discussion about politics out in the world and the content of discussion about politics inside the political bubble have been so divorced. I mean, all the things that people care about are scarcely on the agenda. And yet we're told constantly that the only thing Britain cares about is small boats. Now, that's a, a big issue that needs solving, not necessarily by simply adopting a massive, draconian, cruel, you know, dreadfully kind of atavistic approach that the government wants to. But it's far from the only thing that the country's talking about. And yet here we are. Absolutely. We've stopped talking about the NHS for some reason. You know, it was all over the news around Christmas and now I hardly hear about the NHS anymore. People still struggling to get treatment. Mm. When you're talking about these kind of big issues that you see coming up time and again, and you can anticipate that you will be talking about them again in the future, do you try and make sure that you have panellists and guests on that that's their specialism or anything like that? Or is it just more about whoever's in the space who will be able to record with you? Because you record with such frequency, is it kind of difficult to line up people all the time who can speak really accurately to what you're going to be covering? We've kind of moved the expertise explainer aspect over to the bonker, which is daily and is kind of complementary to, oh, God, what now? Features some of the same people, but a lot of people are just unique to, to, to the bonker. We used to have a lot of kind of expert guests on, oh, God, what now? But what we found really was that people want the kind of, they like the conversation um, and they like to hear from the panellists that they've got an existing relationship with. So we sort of dialed that down a little bit. You know, our panellists have a lot of expertise. You know, they're very much across everything from, you know, trade to Westminster to, you know, we've got enough knowledge on the NHS to be able to talk about it authoritatively. And also they're all journalists. They can kind of dig in and, 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 and put stuff together. So we've sort of put the emphasis of the explainer into the bite-sized 20-minute dailies because we can be very reactive there. We can get on top of something really quickly. We can ask ourselves, what do they need to know about tomorrow and do it that way? And then the job of, oh God, what now is for Roz and friends to kind of see what it all means. With, for example, the hog roast for the greased piglet, which was 
hilariously titled and also a really interesting, in-depth, entertaining listen about Boris Johnson's interrogation by the committee. Mm. That was an all-female panel, right? Am I right, Roz? Yeah, it was. I loved that. I loved listening. Again, like you said, there was was no way I was going to kind of get that sort of content anywhere else with an all-female panel. How did you kind of decide on who? Because that's such a meaty subject. It's a, a quite a fun, satisfactory subject to explore verbally. How do you decide who gets to really go in on Boris Johnson on one of those really important days? Well, I think most of the panel were lined up for that day and we weren't quite sure when Johnson was going to be coming in front of the committee until fairly close to the time. But, you know, as news events come up, we will think, right, have we got the expertise that we need on the panel to to respond to this? If it's a big event like Johnson or, you know, someone trusts his resignation or something like that. And we might shift the panel around a bit to reflect that. But I th- I don't think we changed it around as a result of it this time, did no. we? We just, just everybody on the... Um, I mean, obviously, Aisha Hazarika is you know, absolutely across politics, as as uh, very few other people are, and she was great on it. And it was just a happy coincidence that the whole panel happened to be female. And, you know, may that happen more often, because God knows it's happened enough in the past in the other direction. <laughs> well, like, we, we, we bust a gut not to do a manal. Because like manals are crap and it's embarrassing. When we started out, we, we the first few episodes of Romaniacs were manals because we were literally, you know, putting things together on the fly. But very, very quickly, we recruited Nomi and Roz and all the female panelists. And uh, you know, we, we don't sort of make a point of going, oh, this week it's all women. It just happens every now and again. Mm. And and all, I mean, what I really don't want to do is go, hey, it's International Women's Day. Let's have an all female panel because that's just patronizing it just happens every now and again and it's it's also often a product of people's personal schedules and also what's happening elsewhere on the other podcast it's like well they're all available this week there's your panel Roz earlier you mentioned that the thing that you kind of share with your audience is this kind of screaming into the void together and how that <laughs> kind of catharsis is kind of is sort of really one of the raison d'etre of the show mm. is there like ever a desire to do something else with the audience that kind of listen to your every word like campaigning journalism or make affecting a change using the power of your audience is that something which you've ever thought about or been interested in doing well i think one of the characteristics of this era is that it is very difficult to influence politics and people in the center especially who have tried have often had to quit in disgust mm-hmm. roy stewart being an example, um, because there just hasn't been space for them in the party that they feel closest to. I mean, Naomi, one of our regular panellists, is obviously heavily involved in, in political campaigning and lobbying through her work with Best for Britain. I think for myself, I always, as a journalist, have resisted joining a political party because I find that as soon as I think about it and as soon as I start perhaps identifying more closely with a party, my critical judgment is weakened. And that's not a good thing for a journalist. But obviously, there are those who disagree. And that's fine. You know, there are other panelists who are members of political parties and active in that way. But In terms of the skill set I have, fundamentally, as a person, I like talking to interesting people about interesting, controversial stuff. I think that applies to a lot of journalists. And that's my skill set. And if I can help people understand a bit more about politics and 
inspire them, if you like, to perhaps get involved in a particular way through feeling more confident in talking about politics, that is enough for me. I am not ever going to be an MP. And uh, it's just it's just not my not my skill set at all. But I am happy that I can help people to understand politics better and to make them feel that they are not alone in caring about it and in caring deeply about it. And that is one of the most important things for me. You know, politics is not some dry thing, you know, despite all the efforts of politicians to make it so. It isn't. It directly affects people's lives in a huge way all the time. And sometimes it's convenient for the government to pretend that it doesn't. But it absolutely does. And if we can point out some of the ways in which British life could be different if politics was done differently, that is a hope, a service in itself. Andrew, earlier you mentioned maybe sort of the slightest element of a campaign with BBC Sounds, an independent podcast. Do you want to just talk us through a little bit more about what your position is there and what you think could change at the BBC? Well, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to call it a campaign, but look, you know, my background's in in magazines, right? I used to work in music magazines in the 90s, and it was a constant bugbear that at the end of Top of the Pops every week would be an advert for Top of the Pops magazine within the tiniest type you could possibly imagine at the bottom of the screen, other music magazines are available. And we were the other music magazines, and we weren't getting an advert in front of 9 million people on the BBC every week. And it was intensely annoying, because I'm a huge supporter of the BBC, I am enraged by the constant production of fake anti-BBC stories that our press is so good at. But it's very hard to uh, defend that position, that uh, it doesn't give preferential treatment to its own content and its own spin-offs. And I look at BBC Sounds, which contains some fantastic stuff, often produced for independent companies. That's wonderful. But BBC Sounds appears to be creating the impression that... This is podcasts. This is the world of podcasts. There are, you know, if you are, I mentioned earlier, that kind of person who doesn't really know what podcasts are yet. My mum, for instance, doesn't really understand what they are. They're going to get the impression that really BBC Sounds is the only place to get podcasts. And that would be fine if you could get all the podcasts there. That would be absolutely fine if you could get the rest is politics and news agents and us and, you know, any one of the other, you know, thousands, scores of wonderful podcasts that are available. I look at sounds as more of a platform like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher than it is like a TV channel. And I feel that we're in a position where we could be, and this is to the detriment of the BBC, by the way, because the BBC will live or die by being the British public's main choice for media, for ideas, for entertainment, for discussion. And I feel like Podcasts are different from television programs and radio. The podcasting universe is a vast and a rich one. And the more doors into that universe that there are, the better for everybody. One of those big doors is BBC Sounds. I think a lot of people in the industry would agree that it's kind of hard to argue that it should be a walled garden. Whether you're listening on BBC Sounds or any other podcast platform of your choice, who are your sort of podcast peers? Who are your influences? Do you have any that you really admire and like to draw from, if you could? The thing that got me wanting to do podcast at all is the Slate Political Gabfest. The American one, which is fantastic. I've been listening to it for years, still listen to it. It was a huge, huge inspiration to Romaniacs. It was like, could we do something like this, except it's all about Brexit? And that kind of was one of the initial things that got us rolling. So that I love. I love interviews that aren't necessarily political even and great interviewers. I've 
been doing a lot more interviewing in the last couple of years and I've really enjoyed it and I'm trying to get better. Some of the people who are very, very good at it, you know. Matthew Paris does an amazing job of bringing out interviewees in great lives, for example. In terms of politics, I love Raphael Baer's Politics on the Couch. And he has very long chats with people, which are really long, and you have to have the time to get into them, but they are very good. One that I've been enjoying lately as well uh, is The Economist's Next Year in Moscow, uh, which is great feature-based stuff. The basic idea is what happened to all the Russians who felt they they couldn't stay in Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. It's the intelligentsia, it's the diaspora. I think it's Arkady Ostrovsky presents it. It's just a really great example of how to make features for the podcast format. You can vaguely see it appearing on a radio station, but as a podcast, it just works brilliantly. But we were talking earlier, and we've kind of mentioned this on the podcast before on PodPod, about how podcasts do seem to be at the forefront now of breaking news, you know, more than ever. Why do you think that is? You know, why do you think that podcasts have that sort of immediacy, even though there isn't such a thing almost as a breaking news podcast. Well, we invented this with the emergency pod, didn't we? We, we, did. uh, we invented it we, uh, by doing an emergency Romaniacs every time something terrible happened. I remember having to message Ian and Dorian. I was on holiday in America. It was the day that David Davis quit. And I was messaging them from New York saying, get yourselves into a studio somehow to talk about David Davis quitting. They recorded it, messaged me back, said, it's great, it's done now. And then the next thing that popped up was Boris Johnson's quit as foreign secretary as well. So I had to tell them to turn around and go back to the studio and do it all over again. I mean, the great thing is, like, like we can react quickly and we can just jump straight into the story. And that's actually got easier with the advent of remote recording platforms like we use Zencaster, but everybody has their own one. It's because you're not encumbered by schedule and, and also you're not encumbered by the old, you know, the old balance thing, which means nothing can ever reach a successful conclusion in, and nobody can have an opinion. But also it's like you know your audience and you know the things that they're interested in and what they want to hear. What podcasts are really good at is takes. I don't think we're really keyed up or kitted up for uh, going out and discovering the story firsthand. But there are very few feelings as exciting as, for instance, I was doing one with Ian Dunt on the day that it became apparent that Dominic Cummings was going to be going. And we're chatting away about when's he going to disappear and how did it get to this point and has he been outmaneuvered by Carrie Johnson? And I was able to interrupt him and say, I'm sorry, Ian, I have to shut you up now. He's going. I can see it on the screen right now. He's settling <laughs> out the door. He's got his cardboard box. He's got his little, he's got his von Clausewitz Funko Pop at the top of the box and he's scuttling down the street. It was so exciting. You released sort of like an early release podcast, the one I mentioned earlier about the hog roast on a Thursday rather than a Friday. So what constitutes an emergency podcast release for you? You know, what's the, the spectrum? Liz Truss resignation, Boris Johnson resignation, you know, end of an end of an era, that kind of thing is definitely territory. What else is unexpected? Well, we do start. We'll do standalone, quick sort of twenty-minute ones mm. uh, when something really crazy has happened. And it, you know, in the early days, it was literally me and Ian sitting on a park bench by the Albert Hall, <laughs> talking about I forget what it was, but you could hear pigeons in the background and <laughs> crickets in the background. We'll convene for like a quick twenty-minute one if it's an, a sudden shock news story. The instance that you mentioned there, um, we brought the podcast out. It was that was the full edition, and we just brought it out a day early simply because we thought it'd be a little bit. Pe- perishable if we held on to Friday as we usually do. The main thing, a big part of the success of the podcast has been making it everybody's destination on a Friday morning and now Mm. a Tuesday morning as well. It was like, we will commit to ensuring that you get this podcast at a particular time of the week because then you can build it into your routine. And usually that's meant we could record on a Wednesday and it'd come out on a Friday and it would still be pretty kind of relevant. Occasionally, 
mad things happen. Sometimes they do. And so, and often things are very badly timed for our recordings on Wednesdays as well. But they're always nothing, doing things on Wednesdays. Always, it's just extraordinary. Wednesday's so busy. <laughs> it's on the grid in number 10 in the columnist department. It's like they're recording at half past five. So uh, make sure you announce this at quarter past six. <laughs> do you find that actually doing a bi-weekly podcast for Oh God, What Now is too much for you to do on top of everything else? Or is it actually not enough? How did you kind of land on two a week? Well, we had to expand the panel, didn't we, obviously, because yeah. it's too much. You cannot you cannot get people to come up with opinions regularly and interestingly when they're on too often. It just mm-hmm. gets too hard to do. So we expanded the panel. And, you know, I think we were aware, particularly on a when we're recording on a Monday, that sometimes if it's been a quiet weekend, we have to plan carefully and do subjects that are a bit more timeless. And there are plenty of timeless subjects if you're, you know, if, if you're out there. It doesn't always have to be reactive. But I think it's one of our strengths, as you were saying, Andrew, that we can we can also be highly reactive, but we can also have a timeless conversation mm. about a particular aspect of political thought. Yeah. We can do both. Mm. I think another thing we did as well was when we went uh, twice weekly, we kind of imported a little bit of the international coverage from the bunker. So, for instance, you know, doing stuff on what's happening in France and what's happening in Israel, not necessarily directly relevant to the old Romaniacs things. It's not about Brexit. However, it is about the mad churn of politics and the things you can't believe are happening. So it's it's kind of more relevant. So yeah, a bigger team, a slightly broadened um, palette. The main reason we did it was we asked the listeners if they wanted it and they said, yes, they did. And mm. it was very clear that Tuesday, oh God, what now, or Togwin, as it is referred to in the office, was immediately as successful, if not more successful than Frogwin, the Friday Ogwin. So, you know, it's <laughs> that both Togwin and Frogwin are both doing very well. They sound like Welsh people. They sound like very strange amphibians to me, yeah. (laughs) So under Podmasters, as you were saying, you also have the Bunker podcast. And if you've listened recently to A God What Now, you've heard about Hello Girls, which is all about underwear, Yeah, uh, which I find fascinating. So do you have a sort of brief for what you like to cover on Podmasters. Very good. Right. See what you did there, yes. Yeah. Um, well, we, 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 we like to explore things. We do a lot of politics. We co-produce Steve Richards' Rock and Roll Politics with him, and he's, he's a very well-established Westminster journalist, does a brilliant twice-weekly podcast. We're also making mugshots with Michael Crick, the legendary BBC and Channel 4 journalist, mm-hmm. who's doing profiles of the uh, famous and the infamous. Um, but we've done a lot of politics and a lot of news, and we're trying to reach out into new areas. So hello, girls which we're sort of referring to as a journey through the secret life of pants, is kind of one of our new things. And that's with two great fashion journalists, uh, Emily Cronin and Kate Finnegan. And we are looking to kind of reach out further. And we've got, we we feel like we've built a pretty robust company here and also a pretty robust workflow. We've got lots of young producers, young audio editors. We like to develop things quickly, get them out quickly and see how they do. One of the beauties of podcasting is if you put something out and it it doesn't quite work, you haven't kind of failed disastrously in public. You just kind of fade it and get on with the next one. And mm. so the, the kind of the barriers to entry and the costs of exit are, are fairly low. So it just frees you to try stuff. And I do love the underwear through the ages as well, or just you yeah. know, real life stories about underwear. I just, what a great hook. Yes. And that I'm not going to find anywhere else. Hooks and eyes. Yes. Well, tomorrow, the next one's about, about the thong. <laughs> I can't wait. the thong, yes. The thong (laughs) remains the same. Andrew and Roz, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So that was Andrew Harrison and Roz Taylor talking all about, oh God, what now? And everything that that entails. 
I really liked hearing Roz talking about, you know, the emotions, shouting into the void, but all shouting together. I thought that was quite an apt <laughs> thing. It's something that I think about quite a lot in terms of our echo chamber. And we've kind of been taught that having an echo chamber is not necessarily a good thing. But actually, I liked Roz's stance that it, it's very healthy and at least it feels like you're speaking to friends about it. So that I really liked that aspect. What did you take away from it, Reem? I remember, I think you were asking them about how they feel about other politics podcasts, like the news agents and the rest of politics Mm -hmm. that have come a lot longer after them because they've been around for a much longer time. What makes them different is that there's not enough women in politics podcasting and their podcast really tries to give more voices of women in politics. I thought that was a really good thing that they're doing because I do think we need to hear more women on podcasts talking about politics and not just have men talking about it so that really stood out to me yeah I loved that and totally agreed and it has been so nice listening to their podcast and even without realizing I don't listen going oh my god there's not a man in sight but just kind of hearing lots of female (laughs) opinions for a change is is really lovely Mm. Adam what about your male opinion (laughs) I really say you up there sorry (laughs) So one of the regular guests on Oh God, What Now, as well as, I believe, the bunker, is Marie LeConte, who is a fantastic journalist and political writer. She's written a number of books and has also written a number of features for PodPod, which we will link to in the show notes. But she's she's a, a really interesting voice as part of that podcast because she's very firmly in the millennial bracket and it's really interesting I think in particular to get not just a female perspective but a female millennial perspective on kind of politics issues and political shenanigans it's a really interesting spread of contributors they've got in general. And I think that's part of why it's so popular and has built such a strong fan base and community around it is that spread of opinion, that really kind of broad church of viewpoints. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Sometimes I think what I love about podcasting is the continuity and knowing exactly who's going to be on and their sense of humour, etc. But listening to Oh God, What Now? I find it really refreshing not to have the same voices on. I suppose because then you do feel like you're getting a wider sense because, you know, they, they were talking about which side of politics they're coming from. They aren't afraid to give their opinion, but they talk about the divides even within that, within a certain side or within a certain party. Mm. I think it's really important to acknowledge that that we do have those differences without sort of tearing ourselves apart because of those differences and I found that really interesting to listen to so yeah that's a really good point I also just really love the name of the podcast um oh god what now I feel like that's how I feel with, with so whenever I see the news on like Twitter I'm like oh god what now and so I just it, I think it's a perfect name for a podcast for a politics podcast it is fantastic yeah big thumbs up for the name and i mean romaniacs was a great one as well because mm. you, did, you did sometimes feel like you were going a bit like maniacal sometimes but um <laughs> i think they really nailed the <laughs> the new one mm. so that is the end of this week's pod pod you can find out so much more on podpod.com as adam said we've got so many articles on there about all the latest goings on in podcasting and you can listen to oh god what now on all of your usual podcast platforms 
Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and we're always desperate to hear from you. So if there are any podcasts that you want us to cover or just listen to, I would love some more recommendations from you guys. Do get in touch at PodPodOfficial on all socials and sign up to our daily email bulletins as well to make sure that you never miss anything. Thank you so much to Reem Makari and Adam Shepherd for joining me on this week's episode and of course to Matt Hill who joined on the interview. The podcast is produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media. I've been your host, Rihanna Dillon, and I will see you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.